This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Dr. McClellan, uh, thank you for joining us today. You know, you are truly a man that needs no introduction. Our country is indebted to you for your government service as former commissioner of the FDA and administrator for CMS, and now as director of the Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke. You're truly bringing together the leading research, education, and engagement capabilities to inform policymaking to improve healthcare in our country. And I want to provide my own extension of gratitude personally for being a co-founder of my organization, the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, a nonprofit organization that advances the knowledge and competency for value-based healthcare in our country. So again, thank you for being here today and discussing this important race to value that we have in our country. Well, thank, thanks very much, Eric. It's great to see how the ACLC is proceeding. We need it now more than ever. And um, just want to thank all of the healthcare organizations that are part of this. It's an extremely difficult time for our country. And you all are helping show the way, not just to, to get through the crisis, but what we ought to be doing to uh, avoid uh, these kinds of situations in our healthcare system in the future. Well, Mark, uh, as we start our conversation today, I thought we'd talk about the big elephant in the room, the, you know, the election and health policy, and everyone wants to know your thoughts on the election and its impact on health policy. We're facing a, a new administration led by President-elect Biden. The transition may be a little rocky in as much as President Trump is refusing to concede at the moment. And additionally, we have this epic race for Senate control, which is now underway, and two pivotal runoffs that are happening in early January in Georgia to determine whether President Biden a Democratic Congress to work with or a giant obstacle in a GOP Senate. Obviously, the most immediate policy priorities will be centered on the COVID response, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But before we get into that, I had a two-part question for you. So although the fate of the Senate is unknown, do you think the next two years will either be a, a period of gridlock or a time of historic legislative productivity? Does the work relationship that President Biden have with Mitch McConnell signal a potential period of bipartisan deal-making for health policy? And then second to that, what are your thoughts on how this administration will handle the transition 
to value-based care. Seema Verma has been an advocate for value-based care for quite a mm -hmm. few years. And do you think there will be a change in the CMS administrator appointment with the new presidency? And what do you think the impact is on Medicare alternative payment models? Yeah, so great, great questions for context. COVID response and economic recovery are the big legislative issues for the, the the coming year and so that's hanging over everything but you know as we saw this has turned out to be a more evenly divided election than many people expected with this kind of reverse coattail effect uh, with uh, president trump and the republicans and so uh, i think best case for democrats it's a it's a 50 50 senate with moderate democrats like senator joe manchin in west virginia have already said they they want to be thoughtful uh, uh, to put it mildly about big uh, progressive agenda items it means that if there is going to be legislation it's it's likely to be bipartisan and I think that means, on the one hand, you know, big, major legislative programs other than in areas like COVID response and, and recovery are probably not going to happen. Um, the administration's laid out a few other key priorities, including some action on climate change, where there's some potential, I think, for bipartisanship, some action to address the really difficult racial issues facing the United States right now, where, again, some bipartisan action might be possible. But at the federal level, I think it makes it challenging to consider major proposals like lowering the eligibility age of Medicare, a big coverage expansion. Now, if the Supreme Court does something unexpected with the ACA, and they had a case about potential broad ACA um, invalidation uh, uh, earlier this month, that could change. But Looking at the arguments made and the reactions of the justices, if there is further action on the ACA, I think it'd be pretty narrow and uh, maybe affecting the most popular provision, the uh, guaranteed issue and community rating features that were most tightly linked to the, the mandate or the, the, the tax. But even there, um, it seems like, as Judge Alito said, you know, the, the, the plane might not be flying perfectly, but it's still flying and Congress didn't uh, uh, take any other steps to change those other provisions. So barring something really unexpected, I would think that legislation that you could see would be in areas where there's more bipartisan interests. And that would include maybe some actions on transparency and surprise billing, some actions on drug pricing that could get some bipartisan support, and value-based care uh, approaches, which uh, is uh, to your other question, I, I do see those continuing, maybe not quite in the same way. As, as you said, the current administration has, on the one hand, really emphasized a further push on adoption of, of alternative payment models. Uh, at the same time, they put a pretty uh, intense focus on making sure that the models they are implementing have a very clear path to getting documented savings in the relatively short term. I think if there is an area where the new administration might modify that, it would be maybe going back to a, uh, a little bit less strict uh, interpretation of short-term savings, maybe a bit more flexibility. But Eric, now we've seen Republican Democratic administrations push forward with the authorities that CMS has in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Both have 
proposed and the, the current administration is actually implementing mandatory versions of alternative payment models to address with some of the challenges in getting savings and getting more widespread adoption that happen with the voluntary models. And both sides talking about the importance of models that move significantly away from fee-for-service, at least for large uh, integrated organizations, and support for ACO-type programs or perhaps direct contracting, maybe tweaked a bit. So I do see all of those continuing. Um, uh, one of the other things I do besides having an opportunity to work with ACLC is work with a CMMI-supported effort, the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, that's really about trying to align public and private efforts on reform. And I'd say there's been strong support for that, strong support going forward. Some of the advisors for the new administration have been involved in, in those efforts, have been um, advocates for bigger, more thoughtful payment reform. So what are you seeing now in terms of the industry rebounding to more of a steady state so that they're prepared for the accelerated movement towards value-based care that's underway? And in addition to VBC, what other changes are happening at the moment in care delivery? Also, with the way that COVID's put a spotlight on the healthcare industry in addressing its systemic failures and flawed design, do you think there's now more of a realization that much of we did for patients in the pre-COVID area was low value care and created unnecessary wasteful spending? I think the good news today is that while we are facing some real challenges in getting through the pandemic, you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we have vaccines moving into more advanced development, potential availability, increased availability of testing, some therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies that are coming along. But what we've learned throughout the pandemic is that we really need to upgrade our healthcare system as well. This is not the time to go back to healthcare the way it was before either. And that's why the work of ACLC uh, is particularly relevant now. This has been an unprecedented pandemic in so many dimensions uh, in terms of the impact on our economy, the impact on uh, our daily lives, the impact on the 220,000 and growing number of people who have lost their lives directly to COVID. And at the same time as we've had these uh, direct health effects, we've also had some big disruptions in our healthcare system. You all remember back to the spring when at the same time we're asking healthcare organizations to respond in an urgent way to the pandemic, they saw massive reductions in their revenues in conjunction with the sheltering in place policies that went into effect in March. So just at the same time as we were asking healthcare providers to step up and help take steps with public health, help contain the pandemic, they were facing unprecedented financial challenges. Uh, the decline in the initial outpatient and inpatient utilization was half or more of revenues at many healthcare organizations. The cost uh, amounted to by the American Hospital Association's uh, estimates for hospital alone put hospitals on track to lose $300 billion this year with negative margins even now in the second half of the year. And there's been some recovery since then. Uh, we've seen a lot of care rebounding back, uh, but no question early on, healthcare was one of the most affected industries by the pandemic. 
uh, with staff being laid off at the same time as we really needed to mount an effective response. Some government assistance, including in the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, certainly helped. But no question, healthcare organizations, they were being paid in the traditional way and delivering care in the traditional way, fee-for-service with a lot of in-person services were really hit hard at a time when we needed a substantial response. But that's not the whole story. Some of our work and others have shown during the pandemic that the farther you were from fee-for-service, the better and more robust and resilient your care response was uh, to the pandemic. For uh, healthcare organizations that had a substantial amount of payments and prospective or capitated arrangements, they were pretty well insulated. This ranges from advanced integrated care systems like uh, uh, Intermountain or Geisinger to uh, primary care practice uh, groups that are focused on capitation-based payments like uh, Iora Health or Oak Street or, or others. That financial stability meant an easier ability to focus on what really matters along with that flexibility in payment came flexibility in how to respond. So many of the organizations that were already in these payment models had already partially adopted more advanced approaches to using telehealth. They'd set up longitudinal data system to track their patients who were at risk. Previously, it might have been for heart disease or uh, diabetes. Uh, now it was risk for COVID, but it enabled setting up uh, systems to help manage those patients and, and address their needs uh, at home, all because the, the payment approach uh, was more robust during the initial pandemic response and since then. So what's happened since those uh, early days? Well, we've seen hospital utilization substantially come back in most parts of the country, uh, not to 100%, although some areas of the country are at more than 100% of their baseline utilization levels. Uh, others are more at like 90, 95%. That may be starting to change again as we head into this additional big uh, surge uh, as part of the, um, the, the spread in COVID that we've seen around the country and, and heading into to winter as well, uh, we're starting to see some local areas begin to shut down more, restrict uh, elective surgery, and, and people in those areas uh, reducing their mobility, uh, becoming more concerned about the, uh, the increased spread of the, uh, of the virus. But for the most part, uh, since that first wave, uh, we've uh, stabilized, care has come back. Some important dimensions of care, though, have not. Some very important preventive services, colonoscopies, mammograms, and vaccines was not nearly where we uh, would ideally like to be in terms of the capacity for using these preventive services to help prevent uh, downstream complications. So what hasn't come back is prevention-oriented primary care, and that's exactly the area, uh, as you know, that ACOs and other alternative payment arrangements have really emphasized. We have seen that uh, it's just been easier in organizations that pre-COVID had already started moving uh, into these new payment models with the development of advanced uh, multidisciplinary primary care teams, uh, now including more virtual care, including the integration of behavioral health services. So what I'm talking about here is not just switching in-person visits to telehealth and the hope that it can be done temporarily or equivalently 
ultimately, but, but real organizational strategies around aiming for a more virtual care, continuous care model that includes telehealth, but also remote monitoring, team-based approaches to care, the use of community-based social workers to help deliver care more efficiently and effectively from a patient-centered standpoint. And this goes not only for primary care, but also for many specialized conditions. We've seen organizations shift into home dialysis, especially after the big outbreaks uh, in many dialysis facilities uh, where hemodialysis was occurring with, uh, with big groups and led uh, big risks for COVID spread. Uh, we've seen it with cancer care moving into the home with home uh, drug infusion and more home and community-based management of complications without patients having to come into the emergency room or the hospital. And even for very complex patients, uh, so-called hospital at home programs that are providing uh, more intensive services in the homes. Also very prominent in the uh, needed response to the pandemic has been uh, issues like social isolation, difficulty accessing food and other social support organizations that weren't being paid on a fee-for-service basis or better able to not only identify these problems but adapt some of their services to, to increase uh, these activities. Some uh, ACOs that pre- Previously, we're relying on Uber or other transportation programs to get patients to facilities, started relying on those transportation programs to get food and other necessary supports to, to patients at home. Same with dealing with isolation, better positioning and, and more strategy around an integrated approach to, uh, to patient management enabled uh, more steps, identify those who are at risk for uh, isolation, depression, and consequences, and get them into effective, uh, more home-based uh, approaches to care. This has also been a great opportunity to get low-value care out of our healthcare system. By some estimates, 30% or more of services are adding little uh, or no value in terms of outcomes. Those have been notoriously difficult to remove, even in organizations uh, that start moving in the direction of value-based care. With colleagues, we published a paper in uh, New England Journal Catalyst earlier this year that identified what organizations were doing in the context of COVID especially to not restart uh, care that they probably, that probably wasn't delivering any value in the first place, whether it was for uh, back and other musculoskeletal conditions or other low value imaging procedures uh, or care that could be potentially managed less intensively uh, from a home-based setting with telehealth and these other supports, seeing some progress in, in those areas as well. Setting up these capabilities means um, uh, developing some more skills with telehealth, with patient engagement, digital health services, uh, reformed um, workforce, uh, robust uh, data systems for, for getting key longitudinal data integrated, um, and building out uh, community-based models, all depending on a, a culture that emphasizes this shift towards a, a person-level focus. But the organizations that have done more of this have been able to respond more effectively and the old normal was not good in terms of costs and access and preparedness for a, a public health emergency. We've seen in the pandemic that we can do significantly better. This is an opportunity to, to help move in that direction. While there has not been another big relief bill passed by Congress to take these steps in Medicare or Medicaid, we've seen a number of healthcare organizations around the country 
implement stuff like this. For example, Blue Cross of North Carolina, Blue Cross of Massachusetts, Blue Cross of Minnesota, Blue Shield of California, the state of Washington have all implemented programs to provide relief to primary care practices in the form of some additional upfront payments now in conjunction with working with those healthcare organizations to move into advanced uh, physician-led ACOs or similar programs, more direct contracting phased in over the next several years. So that has the advantage of providing some relief now, uh, but also providing clarity about a path forward that doesn't go back to care uh, just the same way it was before. And I mentioned some steps that CMS is taking to support uh, these efforts administratively. CMS has pointed out some challenges in its current specialized care payment reform models like the Bundled Payment for Care Improvement, BPCI program. They're reforming that to make it broader, more longitudinal, maybe within a few years, uh, even mandatory, but that can provide a, a pathway into um, more integrated care for uh, specialized care organizations. We're seeing similar uh, models being adopted for maternity care, for other uh, specialized conditions. And there is a lot of venture and other uh, private equity investment in organizations like uh, Alidaid or Agilon, uh, as well as uh, groups like Optum that are supporting these kinds of moves into alternative payment models. And we have an opportunity as we emerge from the pandemic when people are hopefully paying attention and don't want to repeat what happened this spring, want more stability for the long term, want to keep the reforms in care to move towards more person-based, telehealth, home-based services. This is a very potentially effective way to do it if we can work on it together. I think there's some other uh, supports coming for these steps in the next year. Looking ahead, hopefully uh, with uh, progress on vaccines and treatments and testing, um, this is going to be the last big surge in the, in the pandemic. Uh, but we've got months of growing out of this still ahead of us and some challenging economic times ahead in, in 2021 with many employers now ready to take more steps towards value-based care. So with uh, large employers like Walmart or Amazon, as well as the members of the Pacific Business Group on Health, committing to models like the ones that I've described, more payments up front with more types of direct contracting, basically urging and, and directing the payers that they work with to uh, adopt more of these models. But we don't want to go back to the old normal. I don't think any of us really do. What we want is more flexibility. And as you know, before the pandemic, uh, the organizations who were in advanced alternative payment models had a lot more flexibility in terms of the telehealth services they provided, in terms of other Medicare regulations like the three-day hospital stay rule and, and so forth that can get in the way of efficient care for a particular patient. So this is a real opportunity for change. So uh, we now have some very good examples in the private sector and, and in some states of how to link response assistance to longer-term predictable shifts towards value-based payment models. We know a lot more about how to do this thanks to your efforts and ACLCs and, and others. 
there is potentially a lot of capital available to support these efforts if we're clear and transparent enough about the pathway forward and, and how the public and private sectors can align to do it. Uh, and we can also uh, use this opportunity to help address uh, the, the real equity, uh, health equity concerns that have just been uh, so obvious in the pandemic and are going to be hard to address if we don't take steps to make healthcare more upstream and more about meeting people where they are and addressing the, uh, the social factors that have such a big influence on their health. What can we do now together as providers, as payers, as employers, uh, and, and patient consumer groups in the system to take advantage of the silver lining? with the pandemic and adopt approaches together that move us faster to alternative uh, payment models. Now is the time as we're providing assistance, as we're thinking about how best to rebuild to make these changes. So, you know, we're not done with this pandemic by any means. We're headed into um, what people have appropriately called a, a potentially dark winter. Uh, the, the weeks ahead are going to be tougher in terms of increased stresses on our healthcare system, increased cases. But that's all the more reason to, to focus on these steps that can help us in the short term with stabilization and response, and most importantly, help us get to a better healthcare system so we never have to go through this again. COVID-19 is the greatest public health crisis that we've ever faced in our country in this generation. The Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy has marshaled its outstanding network of experts to respond to this crisis in real time, guiding federal and state leaders through this extraordinarily difficult period. And I know the Biden administration will be challenged in its first 100 days and beyond to address the pandemic when it comes to vaccine distribution, improved access to PPE, testing drugs, medical supplies, ensuring secure and resilient supply chains, providing support financially to providers, and ensuring the integrity of the FDA and the CDC. So I had a, a two-part question for you here on COVID. How do you think, or how would you advise the new administration on their COVID response with regard to some of these aforementioned priorities? And then also, how can the government ensure equitable distribution of vaccines once they do become available to the public? Since one of the front runners in the vaccine race, the vaccine made by Pfizer, as I understand, needs to be kept extremely cold. I mean, I, I was reading like minus yeah. 70 degrees, which is like uh, winter in Antarctica. Yeah. You know, how Celsius, are we going to, yeah, <laughs> yeah Celsius, yeah. how are, are, how are uh, communities, like especially rural areas, going to be able to store vaccines and make sure that they're, they're able to be distributed? Yeah, it is a challenge. And actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that challenge. Uh, honestly, Eric, the, the, the worst phase of the pandemic I think that we're going to ever face is right now. We knew this was coming, this fall, winter surge. You know, people are tired of all of this. They're having a harder time, you know, following the approaches that we know work. And we are seeing now significant surges in cases really everywhere in the country. Our, our Previous surges, you know, uh, East Coast, uh, Northeast, and, and a little bit on the West Coast, and then South and West in the summer. Those were regional when we had big challenges, healthcare systems then. We could more easily surge in staff, other resources from other places, but it's everywhere now with, you know, more than a million cases in the past week and the case rates going up and hospitalization rates and, and deaths increasing as well. So from the standpoint of the new administration, they are potentially inheriting a really tough set of challenges. But from the standpoint of the current administration, the transition, what happens now uh, in the next weeks, both in terms of containing the current uh, outbreaks and in terms of preparation for 
the vaccine availability and vaccination, which could start as soon as a month from now, you know, really all that's happening while the transition's going on. You know, by January 20th, uh, hopefully a good bit of this is going to be behind us. So it is unfortunate that there's not better communication going on between the, the, the two sides, the current administration and the career staff who are working really hard on these uh, response and containment issues and the new team. Hopefully that's going to improve over the coming weeks. But regardless, the current team is having to go career and political is having to go full out to try to manage the, the, the current crisis. Looking ahead, uh, there are several areas that are going to be really important. I do want to get to vaccinations, but um, the thing with vaccination is that it's two doses for these early vaccines. So assuming we work out all of the issues with getting from vaccine availability to vaccination at scale, you know, that's not going to really start having an impact on spread of the disease and, and, and so forth till, you know, February timeframe. It'll be gradual after that. So there are a lot of other things we have to focus on in the meantime, uh, just highlighting uh, several. Uh, first, still most important is the, the, the usual mitigation measures. And if Congress could get together and re-implement or repass something like that Paycheck Protection Program, the extra unemployment insurance that made a big difference back in the spring and summer uh, in easing the economic impact and the personal impact on, on workers at restaurants and bars and so many other facilities have been affected by the pandemic. That would really help in the short term, like right now, because we're asking states and many states are going ahead and and taking the hard economic steps of restricting access, closing indoor facilities. Um, some states are, are getting close to lockdowns because of how much their healthcare systems are strained, at least in, in particular regions. We, we don't have to do that everywhere, but it sure would be helpful to have some federal guidance and some financial support for, for redoing it where we need to. So either in the lame duck session coming up or in, you know, back, back to what's the top legislative priority for the new administration. It's this, getting financial support passed for the economic implications of trying to contain the outbreaks, but we really need to be doing that now, not eight weeks from now. So that's, that's one important area. Second area where hopefully we can have some more progress is in testing. So I know many organizations have started um, not just trying to make available more rapid access and then results from the so-called lab PCR tests that are very important for identifying who's infected so they can isolate. And, you know, we're at way too many cases to do a serious amount of contact tracing, but Hopefully, we'll be back at that point before too long and getting through this surge. But uh, but testing now matters not just because of the need for isolation, but also because we actually have treatments that, that may be beneficial for people in early stage, the, the monoclonal antibodies. I'll talk about that more in a second. The other type of testing that, that's more feasible than it used to be and much more available than it used to be are... Uh, the so-called point-of-care tests, they're mainly antigen tests. FDA just this week approved a, a new one that could be used at home. Um, that one's not going to be transformative in itself. You know, it's only available in limited quantities. But between um, the Abbott Binox Now test at 50 million per month, Roche uh, bringing uh, large-scale capacity online, some of the other manufacturers, 
by the end of this year, we should be able to produce and potentially distribute a couple hundred million uh, of those point of care tests per month. And these are now increasingly being used, not just with the NBA and other sports leagues to, to stay open and limit outbreaks, but point of care testing as well as pooled PCR. You know, Duke University is using it. We had a, an MMWR report from CDC just this week. We've been able to keep infection spread um, in, in our communities almost to zero and be able to detect outbreaks early paired with other steps like distancing and um, mask wearing. You can really control outbreaks in settings where people need to be uh, together. So I'm hoping that we can see more of those kinds of approaches used in other universities, in schools, in other essential worker settings, uh, firehouses, food processing plants where there have been congregate settings for the elderly, where there have been a lot of outbreaks and we should be doing more on that now we would like to see more of a national testing strategy now if we don't get it now i think we are going to get it with the new administration related to that i think the new administration is also going to very much prioritize reopening schools it, it, it is something we should be doing in this country in europe where they have uh, many parts of europe now have higher case rates even than we do and they are in shutdown mode so the restaurants are closed the bars are closed etc but they have kept the schools open because they have effective strategies in place to prioritize that and because they're providing some financial help to the impacted businesses that have had to close to enable containment while prioritizing things like schools we need to do something like that here and i think again high priority for the new administration if, if it doesn't happen uh, sooner so FDA this past week approved for emergency use monoclonal antibody treatment like the one that President Trump received and Governor Chris Christie. And these look very promising, as is unfortunately often the case in an, a public health emergency. We aren't set up well to get really good clinical trials done quickly to get definitive evidence to, to, to guide what we're doing. But there is clinical trial evidence that uh, these monoclonals can, by, you know, by FDA's estimate, reduce risk of hospitalization in high-risk patients, those over 65, those with comorbidities, people who are obese, which is a large share total of the patients with COVID, uh, could potentially reduce hospitalizations by, you know, 70% on average. Um, the problem is to use these treatments, you have to tell people who we've been telling all along, stay home and isolate until you get really sick. Don't come to the healthcare system. You have to say the opposite, kind of, you know, get diagnosed quickly. If you're in one of these high-risk groups, we need you to come in and, and get an infusion that's like, you know, sort of cancer, you know, serious uh, level of infusion it takes a couple hours plus. And we need special facilities set up to do that because you cannot put you know, infectious COVID patients with cancer patients and other immunocompromised or, or sick patients. And so right now, healthcare organizations, I'm sure many of the uh, the, the people participating in part of their day job are, are thinking about and trying to figure out how they can set up these systems. And I'd like to see, you know, more evidence being collected on who responds to the treatments, who's really at highest risk because we've got a lot more COVID cases now, assuming we are able to set up these monoclonal programs on an outpatient basis. We've got a lot more cases than we have monoclonal drug supply for the next few months. So prioritizing better is, is really important. And another big issue, uh, that one doesn't get sorted out now that would need to be sorted out uh, in the new administration, as you said, is vaccinations. And there's two parts to it. There's the logistics 
of getting the these uh, vaccines that in the case of Pfizer does need uh, ultra cold storage. In the case of Moderna, it's a bit uh, easier, but getting those vaccines out everywhere in the country that the highest risk individuals are to be vaccinated and then more widely after that, plus the whole effort around engaging and educating the public, especially groups that have historically had less access to the healthcare system and have been way harder hit in this pandemic. You know, lower income groups, people from black and brown uh, communities. We need an effective engagement strategy there because there is an awful lot of skepticism out there about vaccines given all the politics of this year. So the current administration has done a really good job, I think, of accelerating the vaccine development process and production process uh, so that we are in a position where late this year vaccines will start being available. For the first phase of this, it's going to be through a very carefully controlled and managed system that includes HHS, private sector partners like uh, CVS and, and Walgreens and distribution systems that'll target the first wave of available vaccines to healthcare workers. So all of you in healthcare organizations need to be thinking about, you know, you're going to get a delivery. You could potentially get a delivery of vaccines for your staff next month. Are you, are you ready for that? Um, how are you going to set up uh, access and, and engage your staff in, in using it? Uh, similarly for nursing facilities and, and, uh, and assisted living facilities, they'll be in the first round. And then by February, March or so, we should have broader access to more high-risk patients, kind of the more general elderly population, others in risk groups like I was talking about before. And that is going to be a very big challenge. And, and that one will be more implemented under the new administration. But the planning for that is something that, that needs to be underway now. And again, a lot of steps being taken, but it's, uh, as you said, it's an unprecedented challenge. And I do worry that we are going to see gaps. And I would like to emphasize, though, that if you look at performance of healthcare organizations during the pandemic, those that are in more advanced ACOs, those that have moved away from fee-for-service, you know, they got hit less hard. Uh, they, were, they had better systems for reaching out to their patients, for addressing, you know, meeting them where they are, addressing their social needs. We're going to need that to help get to broad and equitable vaccine, not just access, but actual use and enable us to get beyond this pandemic. I'm seeing, um, you know, if things go reasonably well, a gradual process here, you know, we hopefully get through this very bad surge. It's going to be a tough month or two ahead, very tough. But on the other side of that, with more testing, with immunity kicking in gradually from more and more people getting vaccinated, um, we're still going to have to wear masks. We're still going to have to distance, but you're going to see case rates in communities go down. That's going to make it easier to do more activities and, and hopefully get into a, a, a gradual process back towards normalcy by uh, the second half of of next year. Um, but this is the worst part and it's going to happen, you know, we, a lot we need to do even before the transition. So Mark, we're heading towards this dark winter. We have this unprecedented challenge, but really there's a silver lining. There's some hope. And a lot of our ACO executives that are listening to this conversation, they're thinking a lot about how we're working so tirelessly trying to address social determinants of health and plan interventions. That really is a result of failures that we've seen in the public health sector due to underfunding, and, and public health has been perpetually underfunded. And I have to think if there is a silver lining, I wanted to ask you this, do you see there being an effort to have a longer term sustainable investment in public health with the Biden administration? 
And since the important objective of value-based care is keeping people healthy, and with how crucial public health funding is to address social determinants, do you think that public health will now get the full seat at the table and one that it rightly deserves? Yeah, public health is definitely going to get some more attention and there are going to be, you know, going forward and after we get through this, a lot of in-depth looks at what went wrong and what could have been done better and the fragile state and weak and uneven state of the nation's public health is unquestionably going to be a part of that. I was FDA commissioner during SARS, I was at the White House during the aftermath of 9-11 and, and, and anthrax. We've had the, you know, an H1N1 uh, pandemic. What typically happens is there's a kind of a temporary response, like a surge in availability of resources. You know, back then it included uh, creating uh, more of a, uh, a national stockpile for, for biohazard events of, of various types of deliberate and, and natural and better systems or systems that were supposed to be better for enabling the public and private sectors to coordinate. So we're going to see another round of that happening to a larger extent. But I think it's also a time, you know, since we're in the process of reforming our healthcare system, and since we've got a lot of new technologies available that we didn't before, to think about reimagining how public health could work. I don't think, especially based on this experience, that if there is another pandemic, and there will be a pandemic flu or, uh, or some other threat that, that really does spread and that is hard to, to, to contain or control, we do need better public health resources for rapid testing and contact tracing. But even when we had lower rates of COVID in our communities, our contact tracing systems, I mean, they just weren't working great. We're not a country where uh, everybody's really comfortable just uh, sharing information with the government about who they've been around. There's a lot of skepticism of, of even, you know, getting tested when you, when you come in or when you have symptoms. We also have a lot of new technologies coming along. I mentioned testing earlier. I think by six months from now, we have the technological capabilities to make rapid in-home testing available at low cost. I mean, we've done it already for pregnancy, uh, getting there for HIV. We've got some work still to do on uh, how we deal with the fact that these tests aren't perfect and they shouldn't be viewed as, as the way some people are doing testing now. Okay, I, took ne I tested negative so I can go out and do whatever I want. That's incorrect, obviously, because you know, people can have lower levels of virus than is detectable when you got the test and still be infectious the next day or even, even that day. It does create an opportunity for a more built-in infrastructure. So, you know, for example, schools next fall, I know Duke is already thinking about this, you know, are we going to have kind of more routine testing capacity for anybody with symptoms? And if there is an, say, a flu outbreak or, or something like that, do we want to use these, some of these new technologies to require uh, students or, or faculty who are close to the outbreak to get tested. I can see the same kind of things happening in businesses or, or schools. And, you know, a lot of people were saying before this pandemic, well, you know, what's the big deal? You know, we have a bad flu year, you know, 80, 90,000 people could die. Well, we may be able to do something about that too through a, a more proactive integrated in, into business and our community and our more proactive healthcare systems, uh, an ability to augment traditional public health using new diagnostic technologies, using data sharing. I mean, all of the a ACO, one of the top priorities when you're ACO is, is you know, use data, longitudinal data to identify your at-risk patients and um, anticipate what their biggest health risks are going to be. Well, that certainly includes, you know, cardiovascular risk factors, but, you know, I think in the, on an ongoing basis, it's going to include infectious 
uh, disease risk factors too. So some new ways for public health to work with hopefully a reformed healthcare system coming out of this, you know, again, just because of you know, the limitations of the traditional public health model that we've seen in the U.S. and the challenges of getting just, you know, substantial ongoing public health funding for the long term suggests that we really need to take advantage of technology and of changes that are taking place in our healthcare system to make it, and, and our businesses, to make them a better support for you know, a more hardened capacity to prevent infectious disease and, for that matter, to do a better job of dealing with cardiovascular risk factors and our number one and two threats to, uh, to, to public health and causes of premature death and disability. Well, Mark, you mentioned the reforming of the health system, and obviously that it sounds like that's likely to coincide with building up a, a better public health infrastructure. But I'm thinking also about the importance of resiliency yeah. in the future of healthcare. And you mentioned, you know, this this will happen again. And then to avoid those future situations where providers must deliver care under crisis conditions and to avoid all the risk associated with the pandemic, we have to be thinking now about the future. Yeah. And in June, you uh, and other CMS administrators such as Don Berwick, Tom Scully, Amy Slavitt, and others, you wrote to congressional leadership calling for financial relief to providers to adapt to the continuing threat of the virus and to rebuild care that keeps yeah. the best ideas for improving care in the pandemic. And you also advocated for APMs and value-based care models as part of, of this reform initiative. So as we get through this pandemic, how do you think COVID-19 will have created a more resilient American healthcare system going forward. And also, as we discuss this achievement of resiliency in the healthcare system, can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with the Land Healthcare Resiliency Collaborative yeah. to build solidarity around this issue? Yeah, happy to talk about all of that. It's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think I know the answer. So let me unpack that a little bit. What we've learned in the pandemic is something we should have known. I think we did know going in, we just weren't living through it, is if you're in a pandemic like this one, you absolutely don't want to be getting paid on a fee-for-service basis. So uh, what happened in the, the spring, back when we did the, uh, the broad national um, you know, kind of shelter-in-place approach, because we didn't know then how to take a more refined approach based on, you know, diagnostic tests and knowing where the virus was and so forth. It's the kind of thing we're going to hopefully avoid ever happening again. But hospitals, physician offices, the 80% of our healthcare system that's still primarily paid on a fee-for-service basis saw huge reductions in revenues and were actually laying off staff uh, at a time when we really needed our healthcare system to surge along with the pandemic to move to, to new models of care that were about early diagnosis and managing um, risk factors and about delivering care that meets people where they are, you know, at home or more convenient settings and about finding ways to uh, avoid um, costly uh, and complicated inpatient procedures at a time when the hospitals were being stressed and, and that could lead potentially to further risks and, and exposures. And if that all sounds like things that value-based care organizations were already trying to do, that's because it is. It really is perfectly aligned. If you look at, and we did some of this in our work, and go to Duke Margolis, COVID-19 resilience. If you look at how healthcare organizations has fared, 
it's the organizations that have been in alternate payment models that have really been able to get out ahead of the pandemic. So they were already doing telehealth. They already had data and could identify their members who were at risk you know, of cardiovascular disease, but now at risk of COVID and could implement things like home testing um, with uh, telehealth supervision and, and even home management of, uh, of more uh, advanced you know, oxygen, other supports that people needed, which was more convenient, less risky for them, less costly to over Overall and help keep the uh, the hospitals clear. They, they many of these organizations started helping out public health because you know it was in their interest too to keep the outbreaks uh, down in their region because they weren't getting paid based on emissions. They're getting paid to keep the public health and population health in their community better. And so we collected a whole lot of examples of what these organizations have been doing that have really helped with a more robust COVID response and have, have uh, compiled those. Um, that's part of the uh, what the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network Resilience Network is doing now, encourage people who haven't looked at that yet, uh, Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network uh, Resiliency. There's a set of principles that a number of healthcare organizations are working on together, and we're in the process of, of compiling even bigger and more systematic approach of what works for care redesign in the pandemic. But what really works is being able to implement these steps in a sustainable long-term basis. And that I think is much easier when you're not in fee-for-service, when you're getting paid much more on a, a person level and have more flexibility to adopt things like not just telehealth, but whole virtual care models with integrated uh, behavioral health and, and social services. You know, it's not something that we're going to be able to, to replicate post-pandemic just by trying to keep some um, fee-for-service telehealth payments in place. We really need to move. So our proposal was about getting there, in particular focusing any additional relief payments that go to healthcare providers, and they should. They're being, they were hard hit this summer, they're being hard hit again right now. Have those relief payments designed in a way that doesn't just encourage people to go back to the way things were, which is a healthcare system that was inexpensive, inequitable, and poorly prepared for dealing with the pandemic, but instead to start building out some of these capabilities in the short term, some incremental improvements and data sharing and making uh, uh, telehealth a more systematic part uh, of their care models. In the longer term, agreeing now to participate in Medicare alternative payment models going forward. There are a lot of private plans that are already doing this. Blue Cross of North Carolina for their primary care docs gave them some additional financial relief right now to help them manage their patients through the pandemic and also to providing support for them to move over the next few years into uh, essentially advanced physician-led ACOs that are going to position them much better and much more robustly, not only to deliver better, higher value care, but, but also for the next pandemic. Eric, I am worried though, because if you look at what's happened, we saw that big decline. We saw a lot of emergency temporary payments from CMS for based on site service flexibility, telehealth, and so forth that helped fill that gap temporarily. But it wasn't really a fundamental redesign of care models like you're seeing in the more advanced ACOs, like in the ACLC uh, um, Atlas, that, that you know what we're talking about in, in that context is more stopgap measures. And unfortunately, what's happened since then is, you know, good news, procedures have come back. So elective surgery is back close to where it was. But we've actually lost some ground in that um, what hasn't come back is exactly what we need for a more prevention-oriented healthcare system. Primary care visits are off, even counting um, telehealth. Vaccinations, uh, there's a new study from Blue Cross out yesterday for kids down significantly. Mammograms, colonoscopies. 
We're not setting up a system that's resilient and moving towards prevention and the kinds of things that we really need to happen now and in the future. And so back to your question, this is a live issue. There is a great opportunity in the lame duck session now and in early 21 in the, the COVID relief legislation for the provider relief that I think should be in there to be done in a way that isn't just tied to your past fee-for-service billings, but that's tied to taking steps towards a more resilient healthcare system, getting a path in place to move into alternative payment models and be more robust and resilient to the pandemics that may still come, uh, to getting through the rest of this pandemic and to delivering care that's that's more in line with the future of healthcare, personalized at home, convenient, and, and more flexible and individualized. But we're not there yet, and there are some worrisome signs. So I hope we're going to end up with this being a, a, another big push to value-based care, which it really should be based on what we've learned in the pandemic. And, and again, I know we're about to, to wrap up, but just uh, in, in, I wanted to make sure and end with just a special thanks uh, to all the healthcare organizations out there that are struggling so much today, but that are trying to do this right. And all of you who are in the value-based care movement, uh, in accountable care organizations, we'd like to hear from you. I know the ACLC would like to hear from you about what's worked and what we can, what can we do to help further these efforts along. Uh, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that we really need value-based care. Mark, thank you so much for your insightful discussion around healthcare resiliency, and I appreciate the comments on virtual care and enhanced primary care. Again, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, having this important conversation with us today. Great to be with you, and thanks again for all that you're doing, and uh, look forward to continuing to work with the, with the ACLC. And, and all of you, take care, and thanks, thanks again for all you're doing in the pandemic. Thank you, Mark. Take care.